Well, I invite you to this morning uh, to turn in your Bibles with me uh, to the book of John. John chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I uh, invite you to grab a Bible. There are a couple available for you on the back table that we want you uh, to use and have if you don't own a copy of the Scriptures. We currently find ourselves here at Ascension uh, in between series. We, uh, our normal practice here at Ascension is to uh, work our way through books of the Bible, to preach and teach books verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, passage by passage, and most recently we have made our way through the small and yet gripping book of, of Jonah. The last couple of weeks, our uh, summer intern, who I think all of you have met, Mike Autry, he uh, has drawn our attention once again uh, to our living hope and to the inheritance that is ours in Jesus, the one the prophets foretold for generations, the salvation long ago mapped out through Israel's prophets. Well, today, for the next several weeks, I think, before we jump into another specific book, I want to do a short, uh, quote-unquote, summer series, and I'm just going to call it Jesus Stories. Not in the sense of made-up stories, fairy tales, but just simply stories about Jesus. You know, we spent a lot of time in recent months looking at ourselves in light of the Gospel. I've sought to challenge us that we need to be growing in grace and in holiness. And this came specifically as we looked for several weeks, for several months in fact, at subtle sins in our lives which we as Christians are susceptible to. Well, I hope that those months of labor in God's Word were not void of any gospel power or motivation. I want us this summer, at least for the next several weeks, to simply focus our eyes, fix our eyes, as the Scriptures say, on Jesus, on who He is, on what He did, and on what He came to accomplish. And so we'll be jumping around the Gospels for the next several weeks, and my hope is that these Gospel promises that are ours in Jesus will fill our sails anew, as we think about our individual callings in the world, and as we think about our callings corporately as a church. John chapter 2, then, is a great place to start. It's a great story of our Lord. And so I want to look at it this morning. Follow along with me, John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses briefly this morning. Listen as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. What a great story. What a great setting. Everybody loves a wedding setting, don't we? Weddings are such wonderful events, and it's that time of year for weddings, in fact. We've got a couple coming up in our context, and so many of us have weddings on the brain. You know, one of the highlights of being in ministry, of being an ordained pastor, is not just getting the privilege of attending a lot of weddings, but being able to actually officiate at those weddings. The joy of celebration, the, the security of commitments made before God and before men. A new life created out of two. There's so much to love about weddings. I'm pretty sure that Jesus loved weddings as well. I think Jesus loved weddings from a completely different angle as we could imagine. After all, He created the institution that weddings create. And He did so with my and your joy in His mind. But more than that, He designed our marriages to proclaim His relationship to His people. A relationship, a picture, a billboard that Paul will later flesh out in the New Testament as he writes to the church at Ephesus. And so it shouldn't necessarily surprise us that Jesus, very early in His ministry, is here hanging out at a wedding. Just attending a wedding. Seemingly having a good time. Notice he's not there to officiate. The text doesn't say anything about that. He isn't there to, to confront any false teachers, not that we know of. He is there seemingly simply just to enjoy the celebration. Ah, but of course, there is always more to Jesus' movements. Jesus' movements under the decree of His Father, under the will of His Father, are never arbitrary. And this wedding celebration and what happens at this wedding will make that abundantly clear. You see, Jesus is at this wedding to, as verse 11 states, to inaugurate His signs. His signs. 
These, these miracles, these supernatural events that will attest that He is the man He claims to be. Events that will begin to show forth His glory. At the end of John's Gospel, this very book that we're looking at this morning, at the end of the Gospel, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Well, we're going to talk about that life that Jesus came to bring. And what kind of life Jesus came to bring. For the acts in the book of John and the act that we see this morning is one that leads to wonder and worship. It's a demonstration of what life in His name looks like. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 2. The story teaches us, I think, at least two things about Jesus that I want to meditate upon this morning. Did you notice that it's almost if, as if no one else in this story matters? No one else is referred to by name. We don't know who the bride and groom are. We don't know why Jesus and His disciples and His mother were invited. It's as if all our eyes need to be focused on one person. The son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Because something big is about to happen. So the first truth I think we can learn is this. Jesus came to bring earthly joy Through his life. Jesus came to bring us earthly joy through his life. Joy. It's a deep word. I'd say that we are a world that is starving for joy. We're starving for that deep, lasting sense of happiness that fills our sails to carry through, carry us through the difficulties of life. I saw just last week that BBC News Online published an article that was entitled, Can We Make Ourselves Happier? Question mark. And it contained the results of a number of different studies done over a number of different years exploring this subject. It even ranked the top 10 happiest countries in the world. And no, America and Canada weren't on the list. Costa Rica was number one. Other conclusions it comes to were were downright laughable, I won't go into them, but what it does is it illustrates our ongoing search and desire for joy. And to many in our world, and maybe some of you that are sitting here this morning, you're thinking, yeah, if I want joy, if I want happiness, Christianity, following Jesus, is the last place that I'm going to go in order to find joy. Because Christianity is all about sucking it up, right? It's all about just saying no. It's all about keeping our nose clean and staying out of trouble. That's what one author said, and that's the conception 
for many in our world. Oh, but Jesus reminds us this morning. He proclaims to us that He came to bring joy. The kind of joy that can turn a party around. Think with me for a minute, just about this setting, about this account. First impressions are important, right? When we meet someone, the first impression matters. Well, this is Jesus's, as the Bible says, this is Jesus's very first sign. He's been growing up. He's been maturing. He has yet to launch out his ministry. He's just doing it now, and he is about to give his first declaration his first introduction to the world. How and where will he begin to validate his words, to establish his authority, to proclaim his intentions? Maybe he'll do it on the grand stage of Jerusalem. Maybe he'll heal someone with the ancient evil of leprosy. Maybe as the first Sign, he will raise someone from the dead. Maybe, maybe he'll walk on water. Those would all be great things to inaugurate a ministry with. But what does Jesus do? He decides to make some wine. See, just like we've seen in other places of the Bible, this is not the way you start things. If you're making this stuff up. If John is making up this story of Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't start this way. This has no bang. This has no zip to it. But that's the point. Is it's not made up. And Jesus is shattering paradigms of what he thought people thought he should be. And the first thing he's showing is that he comes to bring Joy to our lives. Well, you know as well as I do, some of you more than others these days, that weddings are big occasions. They're a big deal. They take a lot of work. Weddings in the ancient world in Jesus' context were even bigger. They were these huge regional events, communal feasts. And at the center of the feast was an open bar, so to speak. At the center of the feast was wine. And so Mary's concern that she comes and expresses to Jesus is not necessarily odd. It's not necessarily out of place. To run out of wine in this kind of context would have been a terrible, terrible embarrassment to the hosts. And so what does Jesus do? Surely there are more important things that Jesus can concern himself with than a little embarrassment. But out of compassion and kindness, almost showing that he embraces the joy in life in the midst of a common town, in the midst of a common people, in a small town, Jesus, the bringer of joy, performs an extravagant, quiet miracle. By the power of his will. There's no touching. There's no speaking. There's no mixing. He just simply turns water into wine. 
His divinity invades the physical reality. He enters into the ordinary and makes something that wasn't something that is. It's amazing. And what are we to think about it? Well, let me give you just two things to think about, about this miracle and how they brought earthly joy through this life. One, just think about the unassuming kindness, we might call it. The unassuming kindness of this act that Jesus does at this wedding. It might be loud and clear to us sitting here this morning, but to the people at the feast that night, partying, their night just seemingly continued. Without a hitch, the wine just kept coming. And only a handful, the servants, the master of the feast, Jesus' mother, and presumably the disciples that were there knew what Jesus had done. And sure, the Bible tells us that the bridegroom came to find out what had happened. He wanted to get to the bottom of things. But as far as the guests, they knew nothing at first. I'm sure the buzz spread quickly. But this was not Moses at the Red Sea, raising his voice, raising his hands, and parting the waters before the throngs of people. No, Jesus began the revelation of his glory, much like the way he came into the world. Quiet, unassuming, and yet for those who were witnesses, it was unforgettable. It was unforgettable, unassuming kindness. But there's also extravagant power and grace in this miracle. If there's any doubt that Jesus brought joy to this party and to this family that was at the risk of terrible embarrassment, one need only check out the wine. Six jars, each holding approximately 17 to 25 gallons each. And since they were filled to the very brim, we're talking about 100 to 150 gallons of wine, and not just good wine, the best wine. The kind they usually serve at the beginning of the evening when everyone's tastes are still sharp. Make no mistake, this was extravagant. It was a picture of Jesus' unassuming kindness. It was a picture of His extravagant grace. It was a picture of His incomparable power as the promised Messiah. And it was a picture of the joy that He came to bring to the earth. You see, Jesus is the Lord of the feast. He is the master of this party. And this is just a reminder for us that our lives are lives that are characterized with joy. Joy that Jesus, is, Jesus brings. His gifts are good. His promises are true. His grace is extravagant. And He desires that people might enjoy Him. That they might enjoy life in Him. You see, far from being a killjoy, Jesus reminds us of the sweetness of life. And that's not to say, as I know that many of you have experienced, that life is easy. 
or that following Jesus never involves suffering. It does. But as Psalm 35 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Jesus came to bring you joy here and now on this earth in your life. That's the first thing that I want us to see as we look at this great story. But there's another thing that I want us to see, and it's this. Jesus came to bring eternal joy through His death. Jesus came to bring eternal joy through His death. You see, what about this sign? Why here? Why now? Why a wedding? Why wine? One of the things we can't miss in this miracle is its place in the grand story that Jesus, that God Himself is telling. As He redeems a people for Himself, as He restores creation, a creation that has been marred by sin. It begins when we think back to how John began the Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. Jesus begins His Gospel with an allusion to the very first words of the Bible. The words of creation. And now we come just a chapter later to the One who is essentially recreating, who is making all things new in and through Himself. Yes, He came to bring earthly joy to your life here and now, but He came even more significantly to bring eternal joy through His death. We see this as He interacts with His mother. It's a strange interaction. There's no doubt about it. We've already said that Mary's question or not her question, but her statement about the wine being gone is not necessarily odd. It's not necessarily out of place, but it sure seems like Jesus' answer to his mother is. He calls her woman. And when we first read this, we see Mary's awareness of the need. She knows who her son is. She presumes that he can help, and though, though she probably doesn't know at all what that looks like, And we cheer her request. Way to go, Mary. And then we're stunned as Jesus seemingly quips back, woman. And in our time and place, this is unacceptable. It seems rude. What I want you to understand is that in that culture, there is neither disrespect intended or communicated by such a phrase. What Jesus is doing is he's communicating distance between he and his mother. It's maybe akin to our modern day lady or ma'am. There's a formality, there's a distance that Jesus is reminding his mother needs to exist. And we'll see why. One thinks back to when he was a 12-year-old in the temple, and he said, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? See, Jesus is not like, or He was not like other boys. He's not like other men. 
And Jesus goes on, he, he makes this other loaded statement. What does this have to do with me? Again, seemingly further distancing himself from his mother and from any agenda that she might have. Why? Because Jesus has an agenda of his own. His agenda is the will of the Father. He came to be Savior and Lord. He came to bring eternal joy. And how is He going to bring eternal joy? He's going to bring eternal joy through His death. And you're saying, but this is not His death. This is the very beginning of His ministry. He's barely started things. But look what He says. After He addresses His mother... The final phrase he says is, my hour has not yet come. What does Jesus mean when he says this? It's like, do you not even hear what your mother is saying? You're not addressing the problem at all. Your hour has not yet come. One commentator made the point, and it's an interesting one. I think he might be right. Think about those of you who are married. Think about when you were single. Those who are single, think about when you attend weddings. What often happens when you are at a wedding by yourself or when you're at a wedding before you're married? You often think to the future. You, you put yourself in this scenario. You think about your own wedding. You think about what it will be, about what lies ahead for you in life. And it's almost like Jesus is standing there and his mind is somewhere else. He's on another planet. He's thinking about something else. And this commentator noted, maybe he's thinking about the wedding. Oh, not a wedding of his own, not an earthly wedding, but all this imagery that is surrounding him. The situation that this predicament is creating, it all points Jesus to say to his mother, my hour is not yet come. And what does this mean? Well, John tells us in the rest of the book. In John 7, 3, it says that the Jews sought to arrest Jesus, but they could not because his hour had not yet come. It happens again in chapter 8, verse 20. His hour had not yet come. In John 12, 23, Jesus says, His hour has come. And then He goes on to tell how the Son of Man will be lifted up. And then in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. You see, my hour has not yet come means... The time has not come for me to die. The party has run out of wine, and Jesus says to his mother, whom he addresses as woman, it's not time for me to die yet. You see, even here, even at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is focused on that day. He sees the bride And you know what he sees? He sees all the people who are lost, who he is going to redeem. 
He sees the bridegroom. And you know what he sees? He sees the sacrifice that he is going to have to make as the bridegroom as he dies on the cross for his people. And he thinks about the wine. And you know what Jesus thinks about? He thinks about his blood and the loss of blood that he is going to shed for his people who don't even know it yet. You see, everything Jesus says that day points to the fact that He is coming to bring eternal joy through His death. What a beautiful picture. And there's even one more pointer that John gives us beyond all this interaction with Mary, His mother. It's the jars. The jars. What are these jars used for? See, John makes a point of telling us what these jars are used for. These are water pots that are used for the Jewish rites of purification. What is Jesus saying then? What is John declaring to us through this account of Jesus' life? He's saying that the old covenant cleansing with water has been replaced by the work of the Savior and by the wine of gladness that He brings in this life and to eternity. See, the mere cleansing with water was never enough. Oh, we're glad it is gone. We're glad that those pots are empty because they need to be filled with the sweetness that Jesus brings. See, there's no doubt as Jesus performs this miracle, as Jesus does this sign of what he's trying to proclaim. He's saying, joy, my people. Joy in this life. Joy in me. I am the Lord of the feast. And joy in the life to come. You can drink the cup filled to the brim of wine and gladness because Jesus is going to drink the cup of wrath and bitterness for you. What a great picture. C.S. Lewis once said, the great English writer, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there is such a thing as water. Therefore, Lewis says, if I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is, I was made for something else in another world. See, that's true of us. That's true of the human condition. We all want joy and Jesus is the solution. Whatever the pain, whatever the ordinary, there is one who desires and has given you more. And so I call you this morning to run to Him. To seek His face. To seek His promises in His Word. That you might know that joy. Nehemiah told God's people, remember we studied it long ago, Nehemiah told God's people in Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord is their strength. 
how much more for us, we who have experienced Jesus, who are on the other side of Jesus' coming, rejoice and rest in the joy that he brings. May it be your strength for today. May it be your hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. A word which reminds us that you came, Lord Jesus, to bring joy. To bring joy in this life through your promises. To bring joy through your death and in our death as we are raised to glory and eternal life. O oh, Father, I pray that all in this place might run to Him. That they might find Him. That You might grab a hold of them. And remind them that these things are true. Father, we love You. Thank You for loving us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. The joy giver. The Lord of the feast. Amen.